Thank you, Don. Well, I was told I had up to four hours to speak tonight, so um, just warning you ahead of time. Uh, I thought this was pretty funny. I, I thought I'd share this with you. Um, an independent woman started her own business, and so she was very shrewd and diligent, so business kept coming in. Pretty soon, she realized she needed the in-house counsel, and so she began interviewing young lawyers. As sure, I'm, I'm sure you can understand she started off with the first one of her client, or applicants. In a business like this, our personal integrity must be beyond question. She leaned forward. Mr. Peterson, are you an honest lawyer? Honest, replied the job prospect. Let me tell you something about honest. Why, I'm so honest that my dad lent me $15,000 for my education, and I paid back every penny the minute I tried my first case. Impressive. What sort of case was it, she asked. Squirmed in his seat a little bit and admitted, he sued me for the money. <laughs> a father and son relationship is very precious, very important. And if you, if you really think about it, often it is the single most important relationship in a person's life. I think this is never more evident than when you see the absence of a father. Whether the father is absent due to death or illness, or whether he's absent due to work, or absent just because he's left the home, you really start to discover the impact that a father has on a child's life. And really, that's no different than the impact that our Heavenly Father has on you and I. It is the single most important, most defining relationship any one of us will experience. And there's a passage in the book of Hebrews that we're going to look at tonight that I think really gives us great insight into what kind of relationship, what kind of role this father will play. So if you want to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12, and while you're turning your Bibles to Hebrews 12, let me share a little bit of background about the book of Hebrews. It's, it's one of, I think, often the most neglected books of the, of the New Testament, and yet it's one of the most powerful Alongside Romans, those two books together really lay the key foundation about what the new covenant is, what it means to be in Christ, to have Christ in us. There are, there's no more important books than, than the book of Romans and the book of Hebrews. And yet, for some reason, it, it often gets neglected. Now, maybe it's because we don't know who wrote exactly the book of Hebrews, but we do have a good idea who, he wrote, who the author wrote to, and that was to, any guesses? Hebrews. There we go. And, and my guess is he probably wrote these to these Hebrews that were Christians, believing Jews, in and around Jerusalem. And what's important is these Jews, these Hebrews, were suffering incredible persecution as a direct result of their faith. Because they were seen to be rejecting the Mosaic system for salvation in lieu of simply faith in Christ. And so all their friends, their family, even business associates, the, the community at large would ostracize them. They wouldn't speak with them. They wouldn't talk with them. They wouldn't even do business with them. Meaning they wouldn't sell them food, nor would they buy goods from them. And so these people, these Jewish believers in Jerusalem, were under incredible strain and, and pain and so forth. And so the writer writes to them to encourage them. And so when you read through the book of Hebrews, you'll see one theme over and over and over again. It's simply, Jesus is better, so live by faith. That's the main theme in the book of Hebrews. And so as you, as you kind of track through the book of Hebrews, you see it over and over again. The writer is saying, Jesus is better than the old prophets. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. He's, even as a priest, he's better than Aaron. That we have a better covenant. The new is better than the old. We have a better temple than the old. Over and over and over again, Jesus is better. And so live by faith becomes the charge. And so included in this book of Hebrews are five warnings. And these warnings are all very similar in nature. But, I mean, we, we see in chapter 2, he warns them not to neglect their salvation. Don't let it just drift past them. Lay hold of it. Grab onto it. Take it seriously. In chapters 3 and 4, he, he tells them, do not miss out on the rest of God. As Don was saying earlier about being satisfied in the Christian life. He says, it's there. It's yours for the taking. Don't miss out on it. And then in chapters 5 and 6, one of the gravest warnings we see there is really the warning of go on to maturity. To, to don't just settle for wherever you're at. Keep pressing on. Keep going further in the Christian life. And then we see in chapter 10 to not despise the gospel. And then finally in chapter 12 to not deny it. 
You can imagine then these, these recipients of this first letter, these readers who are under such intense persecution and such trial and difficulties, and they're reading a letter about abundant life, about rest, about victory. And yet they're under so much suffering, you almost wouldn't fault them for thinking, what's he talking about? Doesn't he know what we're going through? Why doesn't he help us? Why doesn't he give us some word to encourage us during this time? And yet that's exactly what this writer is doing. And so by the time we get to chapter 12, he's going to address this issue of suffering head on. And, and so he's, he's finished the warning in chapter 10. And then in chapter 11, we have the great hall of faith where all the great men and women of God who did such incredible things and they did it all by faith. And so when he comes now to chapter 12, he's going to address this issue of suffering and victory and how the two are not opposites. They're not mutually exclusive, but the reality is one leads to the other. You cannot have one without the other. And so he's going to explain that now in chapter 12. So let's read the passage in in chapter 12. And I'm going to get you to stand with me as we read the passage, if you would. And and the reason I want you to stand is because in the book of Jude, it says this will be our, our posture. That God is able to make us stand in his presence. And so we, it speaks to our acceptance. It speaks to the love. It speaks to the kind of access that we have with God. That we don't know have to, we no longer have to prostrate ourselves and put our face first in the dirt. But because of His gift of righteousness, because of what He's done for you and I, He's allowed us to stand. So read with me, beginning in, in chapter 1. I'll read. You can just read along in your Bibles. Verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which we've all become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who've been trained by it, afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Heavenly Father, we are going to embark on a journey where we are going to talk about some very tender issues. Because whenever we talk about things that cause such pain, such difficulty, It is very sacred ground. And so, Father, my prayer is that your heart be expressed to each and every one of us today. That we could come to understand your ways. Come to understand more about who you are and your attitude towards us and what you're doing. So that this issue of suffering and and pain that maybe we can receive some healing because maybe we've misunderstood it. Misunderstood you and what you're doing. And that, Father, most importantly, we can see a way to respond appropriately. So we're looking forward to what you're going to do, Father. We trust you, we look to you, and we look, for, look with intent, knowing that you're living in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Maybe may be seated. The, the key verses we're going to look at really are, are verses 5 onward. Um, but um, 
I wanted to give a little bit of the context beginning in verse 1. But what you'll see there in verses 5 to, to 7 really is he's going to lay out what is the promise of suffering. And then in verses 8, 9, and 10, he's going to talk about the, uh, the purpose of suffering and what, what's happening. And then finally in verse 11, there's the product of suffering. So you have the promise, the purpose, and the product. Three Ps. You can't preach unless you can come up with a three-point sermon all beginning with a letter P. I just want you to know that, just so we're clear. Amen. Amen. There we go. So let's start with the first P, which is the promise of suffering. Of all the characters in the Bible, the one who is often affiliated or connected with suffering above all else is probably who? Any guesses? Good old Job. We have Job suffering for nearly 40 chapters in that book. And what we what he says about, you know, one of the things he says about in chapter five and verse seven, he says, for man is born, man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. There is a guarantee that every single one of us will suffer in this world in some way, in some form. Now, the truth is, be told is we all suffer in varying degrees, meaning some suffer more than others. Some suffer in different ways than others. For example, if you were born in a famine-stricken country, you will face hardships and suffering such as uh, no, not enough food, not enough access to clean drinking water, um, you know, barren fields, all kinds of hardships that way. Where for us, born in a first world country in, in a very rich, affluent part of the world, our issues tend to be a little different, but suffering nonetheless. We may face emotional issues. We may face even some health problems. Uh, there might be relationships with, uh, relationship problems with family and so forth. So we're all going to suffer, but it just may be different. And it's not the degree too much, so much that matters, but rather the impact that that suffering has on you that matters. So we're all going to suffer. And regardless of the intensity, suffering can feel very hard and very unkind. And the reality is suffering will hurt. I mean, if it's not painful... By definition, it's not suffering. Does that make sense? I mean, suffering is going to hurt. There's no way around it. And because of that pain, it can cause a lot of damage to people. It can begin to damage primarily even in their soul. It causes them to lose hope, to despair. Maybe they become bitter and envious towards people. Maybe they become angry towards the people who've hurt them or or jealous of those who aren't suffering in the same way that they're suffering. I mean, a lot of people died in POW camps right after a holiday. And the reason was because up to that point, they were always thinking, we'll be home by Christmas. We'll be home by Christmas. It's okay. We can endure what we're going through because we're going to be home by Christmas. Christmas would come and go, and they're still in the, in the POW camp, prisoner of war, and they lost hope. And because they lost hope, and despair sets in, and they quickly died afterwards. And so that pain and that suffering eats at your soul to the point where you're left with nothing. And so these men literally died of a broken heart. It wasn't the wounds that took them down. It wasn't the, the, the deprivation and the abuse they faced. It was the damage it was caused within their soul. And so suffering is a very, very difficult subject to talk about. And so... You know, these people who are suffering so much injustice and so much abuse, the writer writes to them and he gives them a reminder. He exhorts them from Proverbs 3, verse 11 and 12. And and he says here, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. The Lord disciplines the the one he loves. What's interesting in these verses, verse 4 to 11, in those eight verses, the word discipline appears eight times over, or nine times over, sorry. There's a theme here, repeated over and over and over again. And we have to understand, discipline is very different than punishment. Punishment speaks to payback, speaks to simply making you suffer for the sake of suffering. You've hurt me, I'm going to punish you, I'm going to make you hurt. But discipline is something altogether else different. When you look at the root word for the word discipline in the Greek, it's the same root word for to teach or to correct or to chasten. And so the discipline here that that the writer is talking about is more towards talking about correcting, teaching, helping someone bring them to maturity. 
The problem is, it may not look a whole lot different than punishment. It may not feel any different than punishment. Because that discipline is going to be hard. That discipline is going to hurt. And so there's all kinds of problems that comes from this. And again, just so we're clear, the, the, the suffering, the persecution, the, the, the scourging that he talks about here isn't strictly limited to being persecuted for your faith. It's any kind of trial and tribulation. Again, it's an, if it's an emotional one, if it's a relational one, it may be your physical health, it may be financial related, whatever you're dealing with, whatever you're up against, whatever you're struggling with, is just another opportunity for God to do work in our hearts. For Him to do that work of discipline in us. And so as one saint remarked, I mean, if God's doing all this discipline, then God, the way you treat your friends, no wonder you have so few of them. Because He tends to be even harder on the ones He loves. I mean, does this make sense? That because God loves us, He causes us to suffer. Did you hear what I said there? Because I chose my words very carefully in that, in that phrase. Because he loves us, he causes us to suffer. Now, I meet with many Christians across many different denominations, and, and they always come to this issue of suffering. They'll say, well, he never caused it, he just allowed it. Almost like we need to protect God. We've got to make sure that God's coming off, you know, smelling like a rose, and there's, there's no problems, that, you know, no one's misunderstanding, that God, because He's good, and God, because He's love, he, He's never connected in any way to anything negative. At least what we consider negative. But He didn't really think this one through. Is God in complete control? Sure He is. I mean, does anything happen without God's permission? No way. Even Satan is still under God's authority. We learned that in the book of Job. He couldn't do his thing. He couldn't touch a hair on Job without God's permission. But here's the bad part of the news. God will give him that permission sometimes. And if a God who is in complete control does not prevent or stop suffering, then is he not responsible for it? Now, just so we're clear, I think there's some suffering we bring upon ourselves. And in those moments, I'm very confident that God has a purpose in those sufferings. But then there's other times where God is the author of them. Where you haven't done anything, just as Job hadn't done anything wrong. And then God authors situations, authors a circumstance to bring pain and suffering into our lives. Now, if we don't accept that truth, then we're left with two other, consequences, or two other conclusions. One would be the one that Rabbi Kushner had. He wrote a book, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? He wrote this looking at the, the story of the children of Israel, God's chosen people, as well as what was happening in his own life when he had a little three-year-old boy who was diagnosed with a degenerative gen, a disease that just went downhill. We'll leave it at that. And so he wrote this book, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? And he came to the conclusion that God is love, no question about it, no doubt about it, He's just not powerful enough to stop evil sometimes. That sometimes even evil will get the best of God. So your God is a wimp. What kind of a God is that? Is that a God worthy of praise? Not at all. The other conclusion is, if you don't recognize that God is the author of your suffering at times, is that God's indifferent to you. That, yeah, He could stop suffering... But he doesn't really care about you, and therefore he doesn't stop it. Neither of those conclusions are accurate. Neither of those conclusions is, gives us any hope. The only one that gives us hope is that this God who is in control, who loves you, has a purpose in what's happening. That he has a plan in what's happening. And so he is the author of these difficult circumstances simply because he cares. I mean, think about you parents out there. I mean, you guys have these kids, and, and kids, what do they love to eat? Ice cream, sugar, just sugar, straight out sugar cubes. I used to do that. I just sneak in and just have sugar cubes. It's like a horse or something, I'm not sure. But, but it was just, I love sugar, that's what I wanted. Well, suppose that's all I ate was sugar, ice cream, chocolate bars, candy. That was my diet. What would happen to me? 
I'd be overweight and really weak and anemic. I'd be so unhealthy, so malnourished, so sick. And so guess what? My parents didn't always give me what I wanted. Sometimes they'd even punish me or they'd discipline me. They'd make me suffer by eating something called vegetables. It was painful as a kid, let me tell you. All varying degrees of suffering. But why did they do that? Because they knew it was for my good. There were some times they'd send me to my room. There were some times where I got a spanking. Why? Because my parents cared about me. You see, if they didn't care about me, they wouldn't care how I lived, and they'd just go and let me do whatever I want. But because our Father cares, because His heart is for you, because He wants what's best for you, He's willing to do what's necessary. He's willing to offer the circumstances to bring us to a place where we can be set free. And what we need to be set free from is our own independence, our own self-centeredness, our own sense of entitlement. And so God often will use these trials and tribulations to accomplish His purpose. Which is going to lead us to the second P this evening, which is the purpose of suffering. I think to understand this best is a verse in, earlier on in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 5. It's a verse that messed with my theology for a long time. In Hebrews 5, verse 8, speaking of Jesus, says, Although Jesus was a son, he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. Now, growing up, I learned some things about God, some characteristics of God, attributes. That he is all what? All all knowing, all powerful, and all or omnipresent. Right? He's everywhere. Well, this verse really came into kind of confront these truths that I grew up learning. I mean, how does an all-knowing God learn something? Doesn't all-knowing imply there's nothing left to learn? And so this verse stumped me for a while until one day it was pointed out to me that before Jesus shows up on Bethlehem, who did he obey? Nobody. He was God. He was not under anyone's authority because he was the authority. So before Bethlehem, before he arrived there as a man, he never had to be under authority. But the moment he arrived in Bethlehem, born in that stable as that little boy, born as a man now, for the first time he's under authority. For the first time he needs to learn to be obedient. And how did Jesus learn obedience? Was it by reading a book? Was it by attending a conference? Hearing a a series of messages being taught on the topic of obedience? Was it in praying a prayer? How did Jesus learn obedience? According to the verse, through the things that he suffered. There was even a reason for why Jesus suffered the way he suffered. Well, now apply that to you and I. See, when you and I arrive here on planet Earth, we arrive here pre-programmed, wired as independent, rotten, rebellious little sinners. Where everything we know, everything we do is disobedience. That's all we know how to do. And we grow up and learning all these ways about living this rebellious life. And then one point in time, you make the greatest choice you'll ever make in your entire life you receive this gift of life and salvation from Jesus. You receive salvation. You receive His life into you. And in that moment, transformation takes place. In that moment, you are taken out of Adam. You are placed into Christ Jesus. In that moment, you are participating in the death with Christ 2,000 years ago. In that moment, you are buried with Christ. You are raised up now, but as a brand new creation, righteous, holy, beloved, as acceptable and pure as you will ever be, seated with God in heavenly places at His right hand. All done. Just like that. Except you still have to learn something now. What do you have to learn now? Obedience. 
Because up to that moment, all you've known is disobedience. All you've known is living after your own flesh. And that's still, that option is still available. Now we have to learn to be obedient. We have to learn to trust. And that's really what obedience is. Obedience is faith. Obedience is trusting God. And we now need to learn to trust Jesus to live in and through us. Well, if the son learned obedience through the things that he suffered, Jesus as the man, as the example, guess how we're going to learn it? Is it by reading a book? Is it by attending a conference? Listening to a series of messages? It'd be nice. (laughs) Truth is, you and I, the only way we will learn that obedience is through the things that we suffer. Through the things that we endure. And so here is the greatest reason for our suffering. It strips away our dependence upon the flesh, our self-centeredness, our desire to be in control, and a God unto ourselves. And it can bring us into a deep, real, intimate, personal relationship with Jesus where we depend upon Him for everything. That Ever heard the song, He is my all in all? That those become more than just words. That He literally is your all in all. For it was in those independent, rebellious years we developed what the Bible calls flesh. These are the ways we discovered that we could employ to get our need for love and acceptance met. Where we could control, or at least try to control, our circumstances or those around us. We might do it through manipulation, through guilt. We might even use threats in order to feel safe and secure. That you're not going to hurt me, but then I can maybe find satisfaction in this world. And although we're saved, our flesh is ever present as an option to us. And we'll never truly experience the freedom that our salvation has brought until we are broken of our dependence upon those methods. And nothing probably motivates change better than pain. I mean, think about it. When you touch a hot stove with your finger, you feel this sensation of pain. And what does it cause you? What does it lead you to do? To lift off. It leads to change. And pain will be a great motivator for change. And without that pain, we would be left to continue on living in and out of our own flesh, living out of our own ways, and forever missing out on the abundant life that is available for you and I in Christ. To not lay hold of this great salvation, this great life that is waiting for us. So in love, because He cares for us, because He wants us to experience, and I mean really experience what it means to have life in Christ, Father will strip away everything we hold dear. Everything. There was a time in my life, uh, about 14 years ago, 15 years ago now, where my life was all centered around a race car. Sounds silly that, you know, how can a race car mean so much to somebody? But at that point in time, Everything else was starting to fall away. All I had left was my race car. It was a car that I, would, I, I literally devoted almost all my waking hours to. I was skipping school at the time in order to put more time into building and designing this race car. Because if this car was successful, then what did it say about me? Then I was a success. Then if I could bring this car home and, and win something with it, then what would others think about me? He must be a winner. And then what would be their attitude towards me? Well, they might esteem me. They might value me. And so I put everything I had into building and designing this car. Well, a couple weeks out from this competition, there's a student competition. We finally get the car done, ready to go, ready to go test it on an April morning. In April springtime. So the snow's still melting, the rain's coming down, and we decided, you know what, the parking lot where we test test is wet, but we're going to do it anyways. So I get in, first guy to drive the car, we start it up. It started up. Wow, okay, that's a good sign. Time to go. So I put on the gas, I'm ready to go, and the car starts rolling. Well, now i got my first turn to come, and I, I begin to let off the, the gas, put on the brakes to make the turn, but the throttle didn't react. The throttle was stuck. So instead of slowing down, guess what happened? I kept going. And I was in a parking lot which was surrounded by a bunch of curves. And instead of driving this car, I became a passenger now. 
So I don't know how fast I was going, but I hit this curb dead on, jumped up on it, and came to the land on the grassy knoll up there. The entire front end of this car that we had spent all year designing and building was now facing left. The, the front suspension was a nice ornamental shape. Everything was fine, and I was fine personally, but I wished that my legs were broken because it would have expressed what I was feeling inside. I was devastated because this car was my life. It was everything to me. And now it was just a pile of garbage. Well, we weren't done yet. We still had a couple weeks, so we spent night and day for the next couple weeks fixing up the car, putting in spares, getting everything ready, and we were ready on time to go down to Michigan for the competition. And there was a series of events, and we were doing fairly well, and we were coming up to the final event now. And all we needed to do was just do adequate, and we would have been great. We would have been fine. But we had a chance to, to do really well. And so I was the first driver. There's two drivers, and I'm driving the car, and I'm looking at my front right, right, uh, right wheel, and I can still see it in my mind's eye, and it starts wobbling. You see, one of the components that we didn't switch out had finally broken. It broke in the most key moment of the weekend. Because we couldn't do anything at this point. Well, every time I tried to stop, I couldn't stop. So I'd just go right through the corner and go off the track, come back on. Does not very good things for your time. And eventually the, the race marshals pull us off and shake the wheel and said, Your day is done. It's over. And just like that, my hopes, my dreams had crashed all over again. And there is no doubt in my moment that that part failed at the exact moment God needed it to fail. That he held it together until it was the right time to break in order that I would fail. In fact, I failed so bad that my name was now synonymous with a crash. I found that the next year that the, the people, when they put someone in the car, they'd slap their helmet. And the last thing they'd say to them before they drove off was, don't ross the car. Don't crash it. So that was my name. That was now my identity. Instead of finding value, instead of finding worth, I'm now a punchline. I'm being ridiculed. But you see, that failure was the best thing that could ever happen to me. Because what it did is it exposed and stripped me of what I was looking to. So I had nothing left. And now I was primed and ready to discover a new Jesus. I was a Christian at that point. I've been a Christian for about 15 years by that point. But I had no real appreciation and understanding of who Jesus really was. And what he had come and what he had given to me. But because of those, that moment and a few other moments... I was now ready to embrace what he had for me. And so what suffering will do is it will expose you. It will expose you on a few different fronts. One, it will expose your faith. It will expose what kind of faith you have. Because we all have faith in something. For me, it was faith in that race car. Faith in its ability to perform. Faith in myself. And it wasn't until I failed that I discovered that's what I was trusting in. Or will your faith in Christ be exposed? Because when that suffering comes, yes, it will hurt. Yes, it will be painful. But your world won't be collapsing around you. Because you are on solid ground. You have a firm foundation. Think of what the parable Jesus tells of the, of the, the two men who built homes. One on sand, one on a rock. On a bright, beautiful, sunny day like today... Could you tell the difference between the two houses? Both look beautiful. Both look rock solid. Both look so healthy and so good. But when the storm came, what did the storm do? It exposes the quality of the foundation. And so that house built on sand crumbled. Whereas that house on the rock stood still. It probably had some cracks. Probably had a little bit of damage. But as a whole, it was fine. Because that foundation was solid. This is what suffering does. It, it will expose your foundation. Just like that storm on the rocky days in our lives. 
our faith, who we're trusting in, what we're trusting in, will be exposed in the storm and in the suffering. It will expose your concept of God, what you think about God. You see, we all know the right answers of God, but that's not always what we believe about God. You see, we know God is love. We know God will provide. We know God will look after us. But when you really look at your lives, do we always live that way? No. I mean, I know that because otherwise we'd never look up to ourselves. We'd never manipulate or control others. We'd never become self-centered. And yet that's how we act from time to time. Why? Because although we know God will provide, we don't really believe He will. And again, in those hard times, in those times of suffering, that's when you really discover what you believe. So God, exposing your faith, exposing what you believe, He's doing this not to taunt you, but to set you free from it. Because until you discover what you're struggling with, until you discover what you're, what's really driving you, you'll never be free from it. You have to see the problem before you can be set free from the problem. That's why our friends at AA, the, the first thing they have to recognize is what? I'm an alcoholic. And the same is for you and I. We have to have that first recognition. Recognize that in and of myself, I can do nothing. Recognize the faulty beliefs we have. Recognize what's holding us back. Because only when we recognize what's going on, then can we be set free from it. But this might be the most important one, I think. It will expose your motivation. Let me explain what I mean by that. We, we sang a song about knowing you, knowing Jesus. Love that song. And as Christians, we all belt that out and say, yeah, that's it. And yet, as I talk with many Christians, that's the furthest thing from what they really desire. What their real goal is, what their real motivation is. See, God's important, don't get me wrong, but God is really often a means to a greater end. And for a lot of people, that end is happiness. Their own joy. Their own comfort in life. And God's great because He's all-powerful and He's loving. And he's got all these great grace and gifts for you. So come to Jesus. Well, yeah. Who wouldn't? Because He's going to give me all this great stuff. And so for me growing up, I fell for a gospel that said, come to Jesus and all your problems will go away. Anyone else fall for that one? I mean, across denominations, across cities, across the countries, I've heard people say, yeah, I don't know why I believed it. I mean, it was never expressly taught in my church, and yet that was the underlying belief. Come to Jesus, all your problems will go away. That meant I treated all problems as something to be avoided. Because if I had a problem, that meant that I wasn't trusting God properly. Because with God, everything was hokey, everything was fine, no problems. But the reality is so different. And those problems will come, often even when you're doing the right things, maybe even because you're doing the right things, as we read in the book of Acts. And those problems will come, and you'll be to begin to discover what you really want. You see, if your chief motivation is happiness, or your own joy, or your own comfort, or your pleasure, then suffering will feel like a defeat. Suffering will feel like it's a blocked goal. But if your goal is to know Jesus, I mean really know Jesus, then you know what? Suffering is a fulfillment of that goal. I mean, is Jesus not a man acquainted with sorrows? So to really know Jesus, what do you need to know? You've got to know sorrows. You've got to know pain. This is, what Jesus, this is what Paul meant in Philippians 3, 10 and 11. For I desire to know Him. To really intimately know Him. Not know about. It's not an intellectual know. It's a in your heart know. It's an intimacy know. My desire is to know Him and the power of His resurrection. And we all say, yeah, that sounds great. Preach it, brother. Yeah, I want to know that. That sounds exciting, powerful, mighty. And then he goes in, and I also want to know the fellowship 
and the sharings of his sufferings. That I can be conformed to his death. In order that. Notice that phrase, in order that. The meaning that because of the, the fellowship of the sharing of his suffering, because of being conformed to his death, in order that, so that, therefore, this could happen, that I may attain to the resurrection. You see, without suffering, there's no victory. Without trials and tribulations, without the discipline of the Lord, without the scourging of the Lord. And by the way, scourging literally means to be whipped. Without it, you'll never really get to know. You'll never really get to experience Him. And so Jesus is the means. Or more than means, He's the goal. He's what I'm after. And so when I'm experiencing suffering, it's, just, it's suffering becomes the means by which I get to know Him. By which I do get to experience Him. And so, it's going to expose some things, but it's also going to give me some positives. You see, in verses 9 and 10, the writer says, Furthermore, we had earthly fathers that discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits? Shall we not much rather be under God, under your Father, and live? Experience life. For they discipline us for a short time. It seemed best to them. But He, our Father, he disciplines us for our good. You see, again, we have to get past this idea that, that good is only easy. Or good is only pleasant. Or good is only what makes me feel pleasure and happiness. Now, good is what's for your best. And the best thing that could ever happen to you is sometimes suffering, sometimes pain, sometimes trials and tribulations. Because in those things, we can share His holiness. Share His life. Share His purity. Share in His righteousness. Because only when our flesh, only when our ways, our independence stops working, do we begin to discover Him and His ways. His righteousness. His peace. We begin to love people. We begin to show them grace. We begin to live in a sacrificial manner because now we're willing to lay down our lives for other people. You see, that's the true test of maturity. See, maturity is not in how much you suffered, although suffering leads to maturity. We don't gauge maturity in suffering. Because if that were the case, then anyone who's gone through health problems or financial issues or a divorce or, or would automatically be mature. But... I mean, we just anecdotally know that's not true. You see, suffering doesn't guarantee maturity, but it can lead to it. So how do we measure maturity? We measure maturity by the quality of our love. Because, you see, the quality of love that God is looking for is His own love. Isn't that what Jesus said in John 13? They, you, they will, the world will know that you're my disciples because you have love for one another. And it's agape love. It's His love. That's the only way that we can measure up to that love is have Jesus live in us. And so we measure maturity by the quality of our love. But you'll never attain that maturity without suffering. Without those trials. Well, that brings us to the third P of our evening, and that's the product of suffering. And this is one of the, my one of the most favorite verses in all the Bible, verse 11. Where the writer says, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. That might be the greatest understatement in all the Bible. I mean, think about that. All discipline, all suffering, all pain, for the moment, doesn't seem joyful. But sorrowful. Well, yeah, it's painful. Pain doesn't feel good. Not that kind of pain. I mean, if you enjoy that kind of pain, come see myself or Pastor Dave. We can help you. It's not healthy to enjoy that kind of intense pain and suffering. You can enjoy what it's going to bring about, but the pain's no fun. It's miserable. It's, it feels like you're dying on the inside. It feels like you're being ripped apart and shredded into bits. That's why the writer used the word scourging. Because it feels like you're being whipped. 
It's not good. It's not fun. It's not joyful. It's sorrowful. Yet. What a powerful word. Yet. But. Nevertheless. Afterwards. Did you hear that? Afterwards. Maybe not necessarily during, but afterwards. Much like Jesus, for the joy set before Him, endured the shame, endured the suffering. Why? For afterwards. The joy set before Him. What was the joy for Jesus? What was set before Him? Any ideas? Look to your neighbor. Look in the mirror. You and I. We're the joy of the Lord. We're what He was so excited about. He was willing to endure the cross, despising the shame for you and I. Afterwards. Well, all discipline, all suffering, all trials and tribulations are no fun yet. Afterwards. Those who have been trained by it. I love that word, trained. Again, it implies this idea of learning your lesson. Learning to be obedient. Learning to trust. Afterwards, those who have been trained by it, by the discipline, by the suffering, by the difficult times, they begin to yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. You guys have a great picture living in this part of the world, let me tell you. Especially when you cross Toronto. Uh, I've never honked my horn so many times in a trip. But um, you can be lulled into a false sense of peace when you look across the water or the trees or listen to when it's not have the boombox playing. But the reality is there's a far greater peace that God offers. It's a peace that doesn't make any sense to this world. It's a peace where, sure enough, everything around you might be falling apart, but you are okay. You can breathe. You have satisfaction and contentment. And you experience that peace. You experience His righteousness. It's the fruit. It's the product of what we've had to go through. Of what we've got to endure. But you'll never get there without the suffering. There are no shortcuts around this. I wish there were. I've looked for them. I can't find them. There is no way to attain that level of maturity, that level of intimacy without suffering. Let me share a couple other verses, passages with you. Uh, you just write these references down and look them up later if you want. But Romans 5, 3 to 5, Paul here says, and not only this, but we exalt in our, guess what the word is? Tribulations. I mean, you might expect him to say we exalt in the goodness of God and the glory of God. He said those things, but he says also we exalt in the tribulations. Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit has been given to us. See, Paul can say, say this because he knows that what he's suffering, what he's going through, is not punishment from God. How do we know? Because in a couple of verses, he's going to say all the wrath of God, all the punishment that you deserve, that I deserved, all of it, every ounce of it, has already been poured out on Jesus. For every sin you have committed, every sin you will commit, all of it has already been poured out on Jesus. Meaning God's not out to get you. He's not out to hurt you. So when these tribulations come, Paul says, we can glory and we can exalt, because I know what these tribulations are going to bring about. I know what they're going to result in. Perseverance and proven character. And hope. Isn't that interesting? Whereas for so many people, suffering led to despair, the loss of hope. The reality is suffering can lead to greater hope. Because I get to see that He is my hope. He's the one I want. He's my goal. Not my comfort, not my joy, not my own happiness. First Peter one or First Peter four verses one and two, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. 
In John, Jesus says that, that the servant isn't greater than the master. And if I've suffered, guess what? Arm yourself with the same purpose, Peter is saying. Why? Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. How's that sound? Anyone want to be done with sin? Let me tell you how. Suffer. Trials, tribulation. So as to live the rest of the time in this flesh, in this body, no longer for the lust of men, no longer after our flesh, but for the will of God. Obedience. Trust. Faithfulness. Psalm 119.71. Look what David says. It's good for me that I was afflicted. Isn't that a nice, soft, gentle word? Afflicted. That I might learn your statutes. That I might understand your ways and who you are and your character. So it was good that I went through what I went through. This is the man who's talking about being on the run, being on the land for 13 years while the king of Israel wanted him dead simply because he existed. He didn't do anything wrong. And yet God was the author of those circumstances to prepare David to be the man after God's own heart. Without that affliction, without that suffering, David's not the man he is. And then here's a great one, 2 Corinthians 4. Right after, or soon after the verse that Don talked about with the, the earth and vessel, soon after that he says, Therefore, do not lose heart. Don't despair. Don't lose hope. But though our outer man is decaying, even though we're feeling worse and worse as each day, more aches and pains, Things aren't going the way we're going and, and we're on the downside of life. Even though our outer man is a king, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. And you might say, well, momentary light affliction. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll sign up for that. What does Paul know about pain and suffering if he's calling it momentary and light? Well, in a few chapters, in chapter 12, he talks about being beaten shipwrecked, left for dead, um, out at sea overnight. You know, he is so beaten and so bruised and so battered. He knows about pain. The reason he calls it momentary in light is because in comparison to what awaits, what awaits is so much greater. So the momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So we are looking forward to something greater than just this world. And it's the suffering, it's the trials that are bringing us there. So how do we apply all this? Well, we have some options to respond in our response. One option to trials and tribulations is to fight against them. To see them come and you just grit your teeth and you just put everything you can into them and you do your best to overcome. You try to fix it and, and change it and, and do whatever you can to make things work. And if that means, you know, namely getting other people fixed, then that's what it'll take. Because that's really it, right? Pe- other people are the source of our problems. Amen. So I just get everybody else fixed, then I'd be fine. So I fight. I try to change my, my spouse, change my kids, change my friends, change my church. If I could just get them to be in the image of me, I mean God, then everything would be fine. And so we fight against it. Problem is, as Jack Taylor so famously said, if God's fixing to fix you and you fix to fix, he fix to fix you, he'll fix another fix to fix you. Meaning, you ain't more powerful than God is. And the harder you fight, the bigger the problem you're going to face. Well, another option then, when fighting often doesn't work, then we go to withdraw. We go to give up. And we might also make it sound spiritual, but the reality is we've just withdrawn and given up hope. We just kind of go numb to the pain. What's the point? I mean, I'm up against God. Can't beat God. Can't win this battle. What's the point? And so we just give up on life. 
It's almost like we're in this battle and instead of pressing on forward in the battle, we just sit down where we are. No more fighting, but no more progress. And in that moment, we settle for what we got. And I think that's what this writer in Hebrews is saying to these people when he's saying, lay hold of this salvation. Enter into His rest. Press on to maturity. Don't just sit down and stop. Keep growing. Keep maturing. So what would be a proper response? It's what we've been talking about all night. It's surrendering Him. And what I mean by surrendering Him, another word that might help make this sense is to accept it. To embrace it. As as Don said, to rejoice in it. Now, watch this. You're not rejoicing about the pain. Again, if you are, come see David or myself. We'll help you. What we're rejoicing in is what God's going to lead us to. What God will accomplish in this and through this. And we're accepting it as God's divinely appointed instrument. As God's divinely appointed plan and way and method to bring you to that full maturity. To bring you to that deep understanding of knowing, really knowing Jesus. Knowing Him as your life. So it's all based on that truth that Jesus is better. Better than this world. Better than your happiness. Better than your family. Better than your health. Better than you being in control. And since Jesus is better, we live by faith. We trust Him. We depend upon Him. We surrender ourselves Holy unto Him. Just like we've been singing this evening. It means to trust Him, to surrender to Father, accept the events as His means to shape and conform us in the image of His Son. It does not mean that we never make changes to the situation. Because sometimes we're called to. What it means is that the changes we make are only at the leading of Jesus. They're not made for our own comfort. They're not made so that things go the way that we want them to go. They're made because Jesus in us leads us to do it. And then He does it through us. But sometimes it means that there's no change made at all. Because there are some things that you and I are meant not to get through or to get past, but to endure through and under. That's really what perseverance means that we read in Romans 5. To stand up under the trial. Because God's greatest victories are not victory from the trial. They're victory in and through the trial. That's victory. The person who goes through a difficult relationship, a health problem, financial issues, and it just never seems to go away, and yet they continue to trust. They continue to rely upon Jesus. That's victory. That honors God more than a song we sing or a track being passed out. Because in that moment, we're choosing to trust Him over and over and over and over again. And maybe that's what makes surrender so hard. That it's not just a one-time thing. It's not just, I've prayed this prayer, I've turned it over to you, God, all done. I'd be easy. Instead, it's a constant surrender. It's a constant laying over to Him. Each and every moment. Each and every day. Even more difficult when the circumstances don't improve. Or might even get worse. So pain and suffering, tribulation, it does not, if it does not lead to this place of surrender and trust, it's wasted pain. And I'll tell you what, pain is so costly. I don't want to waste any of it. Because it's cost me so much. It's hurt me so much. So I'd rather take full advantage of that pain and let it lead me to that intimate knowledge of Jesus. So I encourage you tonight for you to invite Jesus to work in whatever you're going through. Maybe you're going through a trial right now. Or if you're not, to say, Lord, I'm willing to. Don't necessarily pray for the trial. You don't have to. It's going to come. You live in this world. But say, Lord, I'm willing to go through whatever you have because my desire is not anything in this world. It's not what this world can offer me. My desire is to know you.
at all costs. So I surrender to you. Let's pray. Father, what a beautiful name we get to call you. You're more than our God. You're more than our King. You're more than our Lord. You're a Father. We are your children. And the depth to which you love and you care for us is so immense. It is so great. In fact, it is so great you are even willing to author difficult circumstances, difficult moments in our lives so that we can be free. And Father, we in in a church, in our society, have done a poor job explaining suffering. We've taught it as something to be avoided, to pray against, to blame it on the devil. When the truth of the matter is, suffering is often the tool you use to shape us and conform us into your Son, to His image. And so, Father, my prayer is for every one of us, myself especially, that we don't fight against you. That we instead choose to embrace what you have authored. Embrace what you have come up with. That we might experience you. Experience healing, wholeness, freedom, and above all else, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. In your name we pray, amen. If... um,